uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all uh, on behalf of ISB Special Interest Group Community uh, to this fireside chat, uh, Impact of COVID-19 Misinformation Pandemic on Public Health and Society. Today we have with us Dr. Angus Thompson, who is a former and dear colleague of mine. Uh, Dr. Thompson is a thought leader on science and health communication, particularly around vaccine demand and acceptance. Um, his pioneering work in this field has led to establishment of this vertical, not just his previous company, but also in the wider industry. And, I, and I'm the biggest beneficiary because I get to continue where he started. He currently works at the Public Health Forefront and supports UNICEF's stewardship in Demand Hub, which is an interagency collaboration to drive progress on this topic. Angus strongly believes that this pandemic has brought into focus the importance of human behavior and disease control and the terrible impact misinformation may have on the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, thank you, Angus, for agree agreeing to spend some time with us and share and to share your thoughts and insights on this topic. Uh, have you with us? Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. So now, good morning, uh, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, good afternoon for you. You, uh, I'll just be sharing my screen, and we'll just get started. So this is uh, the topic of. Uh, today's uh, discussion. So uh, uh, some uh, logistics, some ground rules. We usually follow Chetam House rules uh, to enable an engaging discussion, but because of the virtual format, and I, I think we, we should uh, have this uh, proviso at the outset that the speaker and moderator will be sharing our personal views and we don't represent any organization we are associated with. And our slides and discussion may contain names of some persons, communities, brands, organizations, professions, and countries. But these are for discussion purpose only and we'll provide due explanation ensure there is no misrepresentation of any of them. Uh, this uh, is something you've seen. Uh, so this is the format of the session. Uh, it's important that you keep us posted of your questions in the Q&A tab and uh, uh, we'll be happy to take as, as many of them as possible. We've also uh, had some response in, in pre-survey, uh, pre-session surveys and uh, we'll, be we'll be taking those responses as well during the session and uh, this is how it will flow. We'll start with your feedback, uh, and then we'll do sort of light polls on on some subtopics, uh, with, uh, and on which uh, you know Angus will share his uh, comments, and then we'll go uh, and and see if there are more questions. We can always include them uh, in the discussion. Finally, uh, our ISB colleagues will will you know close the session with a vote of thanks. This is what we have seen uh, in terms of your responses. Uh, we have received 14 responses. So again, this is, let's say, some of the earliest 14 responses we have received. And we, we try to uh, develop a, a word cloud to see which are the most common ones. Uh, as you can see, COVID is the most common one. What, what I mean by COVID here is it's, uh, it shows that there are certain questions around COVID, uh, which people, uh, which our participants want to understand. And they are you know, questions like, does it spread, uh, so do it spread COVID? And uh, does currency note uh, COVID and how to avoid that situation. And even a question like when India will get COVID vaccine. Uh, so this may not be the focus of today's discussion, specifically this uh, trying to answer some of the questions which which uh, which uh, uh, some other people do. Uh, but I think uh, I'll uh, you know ask Angus because he's involved in many discussions with uh, many of these experts who have answers to these questions. And if he wants to give uh, some of these answers. Uh, especially around COVID. Well, perhaps you'd like me to start with the vaccine. Yes, yes. That's your favorite topic. Um, I think there are great, you know, there are great expectations that a, a vaccine will be a magic bullet and will help us to return to normal. Um, coming from the vaccine sector, and in particular the vaccine industry, having worked in the same organization as Manoj, um, we're very aware that uh, the development of a new vaccine is a very, very um, intense, long-term um, endeavor uh, for very good reasons. Uh, these, are, these are products that we give to healthy people to keep them free of disease, um, often giving them to very young infants. So the, the kind of the, the restrictions, the, the quality and compliance uh, throughout the development of the vaccine is, is you know, better than probably any product you could imagine in the world. Um, what we're seeing is that rather than taking shortcuts, companies are 
shortening or um, overlapping, having overlapping steps or phases of development to, to accelerate the development of the vaccines. We're unlikely to have anything before next year, that's for sure, I think. I mean, Fauci said we could have something uh, in October, but I find that hard to believe. Um, we're seeing, uh, so there are, I think there are something in the order of 27 um, vaccines in human trials. Uh, those that we're getting data from, and this is one of the challenges that a lot of the data is, is not yet made public, which makes this a difficult question to answer. Um, those that we have seen public data uh, for, we have seen the data for, suggest that they've got quite high, all of them, and, and this doesn't seem to depend on the kind of vaccine, quite high reactogenicity. That means that the initial adverse uh, reactions to the vaccine, a rash, headache, fever, sore arm, seems to be quite high compared to most vaccines. Um, so the answer is, uh, it's not coming anytime very soon. Um, and even when it comes, it won't be the magic bullet because we'll have to um, get it. We'll have to produce it. Uh, we'll have to get it out to people. We'll have to distribute the vaccines. Um, and, uh, and this is the place that I come from in my, in my research and practice and uh, along with Manoj, people need to accept the vaccine as well. And we have heard uh, from studies in different countries that perhaps a quarter of uh, any country that's any population that's been surveyed uh, says they won't uh, get this vaccine if it comes. So you imagine that combined with rapid development, combined with perhaps high reactogenicity, means that we could be uh, looking at a difficult introduction of, of any vaccine that is available. Over. Okay, uh, thank you. I think, uh, I think we know something now about uh, when we are likely to get the vaccine and how, um, what we need to do before that. I think that's, that's also equally important. Uh, so I think we'll come back to the other questions uh, as, as and when we proceed with the, with the topics. Uh, even for, for some of the other questions which, you, which people have in terms of bits and currency and some other, some other questions which people may have, these are some of the credible resources which you can go, starting with the state government, municipal corporation websites, you know, uh, India's Ministry of Health, ICMR, WHO Q&A, uh, uh, as well, and then USCDC is also a good source for your information. And, uh, you, we'll, we'll uh, you know, bring this uh, source back in the last slide. So this is just for your uh, heads up. This is something you can see again. Now coming back to this second question, which we had uh, in our pre-session surveys, uh, have you heard any COVID-19 rumor? And we got, I mean, this is again an analysis of the first 22 responses. Uh, is that uh, most common if you see a theme emerges is, uh, is around random cures. And then um, some organizations, uh, some countries, sometimes even some religious communities. Uh, so that means our, our, our participants feel that there have been some rumors around these topics. And uh, so since this is just a small uh, sample, I would say, so I did some quick uh, of the envelope analysis to just to see whether, uh, how, how the wider uh, you know, country looks at some of these issues. And because this is something we know, uh, uh, you know, could have rumors around these topics, but Let's say what are the search? What is the search behavior of people across the countries? And uh, before that, I think I'll just let, like to state uh, one statement uh, in a recent meeting by WHO COVID-19 special envoy, Dr. Navarro. He said that uh, for many of us, the arrival of this brutal virus has shaken our understanding of what is at the center of life. It has caused us to rethink what is at the heart of our existence. So therefore, uh, one one has various kinds of questions in mind, and uh, we will see how. Uh, how that plays out. Uh, if you see, this is, let's say, my first cut uh, here. Uh, I've just looked at some of the key, key search terms which, are, which we got in uh, the pre-session survey. Uh, so, uh, and we have, if you see, we have, you know, we have, we, have, we have to use some exact search term here just to make very sharp, uh, just to capture sharp trends. And therefore, you see, uh, we have some brands as well as some religious communities mentioned here. But just to give you this context, uh, that the most common search term uh, in this one-year period in India is uh, on, on Google trend on Google is, is China. And, uh, you know, first, if you see the first peak of that is, is coming around the uh, period of uh, when we had the first, uh, this first small peak is around when we had the first case, that is 30th of January. And the second big, uh, the second peak, which is bigger one, is around the first lockdown uh, that was around end of March. And the last peak we know could be due to other reasons, so we will not get into that. And then vaccine uh, is something which has got a lot of search uh, interest. This is all relative, as we see. 
and then WHO also has got some interest. But the religious community, which I was mentioning to, is not something which you know. Uh, even if we we thought that has been most searched topic, it has not been, and there are other things which people have searched. And I'm glad that that topic did not become a major uh, major you know topic for discussion, uh, because we don't want to. Uh, I mean, we should not have a situation where we stigmatize uh, any community. So this is this is what exactly we know about search behavior. But if we just focus on context, something what Navaro was saying that people are in difficult situation. Uh, sorry for this. Uh, there's some issue. So what I wanted to show here is uh, that if you look at uh, coronavirus, uh, I've just added a new search term here, and this is exactly what Dr. Navaro said that uh, people are uh, people are confused. People are worried because of this uncertainty. Coronavirus is is the biggest trend here. You know, there is no other trend which even matches. China uh, uh, is not even close. Vaccine is nowhere to be seen. It's 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 this topic we we, we should be sensitive to uh, about about these people's concerns, and that's that's how uh, this progresses. So, uh, Dr. Tedros also said that we are not just fighting an epidemic; we are fighting an infodemic. And therefore, this is something which you know my my kind of amateur analysis uh, of you know what what I saw in your feedback, and now I'll. Uh, you know, uh, kind of to Angus, you know, to uh, to have his expert views on on some of these, uh, uh, you know, some of these terms, and you know, what what does how does he see the trends in India with the rest of the world, and does if you if you want me to have this slide or or you want to, uh, uh, you know, should I go back? Yeah, give, no, give me one minute with this slide because it, it helps us understand what's going on in in this infodemic. So. <clears throat> It's important to understand what we're looking at. An infodemic, this, this phrase coined by the WHO, and I've just, I've just been part of a, a seven-day conference on this, um, the, first, the first global conference on this topic, is characterised by both too much information and also um, misinformation. But what's important is that there's also disinformation. So information is uh, important for us to... It's, it's how we... Uh, develop our knowledge and understand our world, but it's not always sufficient on its own to change our perceptions or our behaviours. It needs to be framed, you know, it needs to be resonant with uh, our worldview, you know, the way we see the world. It needs to come from trusted sources. Um, this is called epistemic trust, and it needs to be actionable. It needs to give us something that we can do. What we're seeing is uh, there's a lot of misinformation. So this is, you know, accidental falsehoods, wrong or misleading information. This can dilute things, it can distract us, it can distort things. But what's important to understand is that there is also a lot of disinformation. Now, this comes from a Russian word uh, coined by the KGB in, in the 50s. Disinformation is deliberate, engineered falsehoods. A study by um, a researcher looking at vaccine disinformation called it weaponized health information. And what's important to understand about this is, one, it is, it is designed to stick and to, have an, to be shared, to spread, uh, to be viral, and also have an impact on people's um, beliefs and behaviours. And those who, who develop it and spread it almost invariably have ulterior motives. And we'll come back to that later. Over. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so I'll, I'll go... The next one. Uh... <laughs> I put this in for fun because I don't often get to use the word hamster cow. And this is definitely my favorite word of the year. This is a German word that's a combination of hamster or hoarding and calf shopping. So <laughs> the question we must ask, of course, is does this change people's behaviors? And the answer is uh, in, in, in the infodemic that we find ourselves, yes. So people who believe that coronavirus is a bioweapon developed in China are more likely to show or were more likely to show hoarding behaviors. Um, a massive 44% of Republicans uh, believe that Bill Gates is plotting a mass campaign of vaccination to implant microchips in billions of people so that he can track them. Um, and we know that belief in um, conspiracies uh, correlates with vaccination intentions. So just, just to put in your minds, this does have an impact on people's behaviors. Over. Thank you. I think this is interesting because uh, you know we, we did get a couple of responses around 5G and some other conspiracy theories from the from the India. I would say most of our participants, let's say, were from India. And uh, when, when I did trend, try to search uh, them on uh, on Google Trends, and uh, because I could only let's say search for the top five terms and 5G or some of the other 
conspiracy theories which uh, which were there you know in as as you also show in maybe other parts of the world but not something which we saw very prominently in the indian uh, search term and uh, uh, and therefore this is not something which i showed in the, in the previous graph as well so any any uh, kind of any insights on how it differs from country to country yeah please get picked up so what we see uh, when we take a global view is um, some common themes and some specific themes behind those we also see some common motivations and some specific motivations uh, disinformation is primarily being created to make money let's be let's be honest about this and we'll come back to how uh, people monetize disinformation uh, specifically in um, on social media and social networks um, but it's also used for other purposes it's also used to polarize societies it's also used to politicize and so we're seeing it being used um, <clears throat> to uh, further hate uh, agendas, to further agendas uh, that are political, that are um, uh, racist. Um, and so often the, the, the rumors, the missing disinformation, or the conspiracy theories that we see um, are deliberately engineered to further these agendas. And I think it's important just to, just to take a step back and say what's going on with conspiracy theories, because uh, the general reaction of people is, what's wrong with people? How can they possibly believe this? And um, Manoj referred uh, a couple of minutes ago to this, this period of um, uncertainty, of uh, confusion during the pandemic. And let's face it, we're all uncertain and we're all confused by the coronavirus. This is a new virus that's having an impact on uh, the globe in a way that we've actually really never seen um, or we haven't seen for decades. Um, conspiracy theories serve a specific psychological uh, purpose. They provide to those who feel uh, levels of uncertainty, of powerlessness and of confusion, they provide a level of surety, of clarity, of explanation, and more importantly, a level of control or a way of managing that sense of powerlessness, which is saying that there is no way that you can have control. This, these are greater forces that are causing this. So uh, it's, it's quite understandable why conspiracy theories stick with many, many people, especially in the context of a pandemic as we find ourselves now. What's important to understand is that those authors of disinformation, those entrepreneurs of disinformation understand this psychology um, perhaps intuitively, but they understand it well, and they craft their conspiracy theories accordingly. So the middle conspiracy theory that you see there um, that actually had 5G wrapped into it, these, you actually end up with these super conspiracies where we wrap more and more and more and more things in there. Each of these things have the perhaps a potential tiny kernel of truth, or at least they could be true, um, and as they, as they develop and are built, well, not develop, as they are developed and spread, um, in the end, they seem incredible, but as they're built out, we can see that, um, we can see why people would be drawn into them. Over. Okay. Uh, thank you. I think before we proceed, I think there is, there is a question. Um, uh, and I, I, and I think it's, it's on the lines which we discussed before. Uh, so there's a question about, can we get reinfected from the virus twice? Uh, uh, I, I, as we mentioned, this is not something we, we are focused on right now, but you know, my sense would be um, we can if, uh, you know, if, if there is not so long-term immunity uh, which, which one gets after the first infection. Um, what do you think, uh, Angus? Um, so I'm, uh, I have some immunology training. I'm not an expert on this. The, I think it, what's important to understand is that our knowledge is evolving every day. And so it's important that we also acknowledge this level of uncertainty at a scientific level and accept that we will hear things today that will be shown to be wrong in a few weeks time. That is how the scientific method works. The most recent study uh, that I read that was reasonably good, the problem is that many of these studies are not uh, going through peer review because we're, we're rushing to get the information out, suggests that the answer is no but we still don't have a sufficient grasp of um, the immunology of this virus to be sure about that. <clears throat> um, 
and uh, we will also get clues uh, from the vaccination, from the trials of the vaccines. Um, and we know that almost all of the vaccines are likely to require at least two doses. Um, but the answer, unfortunately, right now is we don't know. <laughs> Along with the answer to many, many, many COVID-19 related questions. But I think this is important for us to understand as a group that, that um, you know, it's our job also to help people understand how the scientific method works. Okay, we, we ask the questions and we, we test them empirically as best we can. And then with the answers that we get, we ask new questions. And so our knowledge evolves. And that's, that's how we have been able to understand our world to the unprecedented level that we, that we find ourselves um, you know, in 2020. But it doesn't mean that we are able to find the answers immediately. Over. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think uh, we will, I think to these questions, I think, as I said, we will again provide you at the end uh, to all the people who have joined in some of the credible links that they could go through. And I think uh, some of the organizations they have done, uh, actually they've tried to make their websites and their tools very user-friendly. You can actually search for certain, uh, you know, questions and you, you can get uh, good answers or, or very evidence-based answers as, as we just discussed. Yeah. Okay, so I will, uh, some issue. Uh, yes. Okay, uh, sorry. So Manoj, I just wanted to give on that slide, I just wanted to just take a minute to reflect on what we're dealing here, what we're dealing with, uh, with social media. So in addition to that level of uncertainty that uh, people are experiencing, to the fact that there are um, uh, purveyors of misinformation of snake oil out there who are trying to profit from this situation, we have now social media, social platforms that were designed to be addictive, to be attractive, to be irresistible. And I think this quote from the first president of Facebook uh, that was made uh, five or six years ago is very, very, very telling. The thought process behind building Facebook was how to, how to consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. How? A little dopamine hit. Dopamine is the, is the chemical messenger um, that uh, makes us uh, feel good, makes us want to repeat behaviors that is behind many, most addictions. A little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post. It's a social validation feedback loop. Basically, they have hacked a vulnerability in human psychology. And therefore, we know that Information can spread rapidly um, across, uh, you know, with no geographical borders. That misinformation and disinformation can spread even faster and wider than, than fact, than, than truth. And the, the, key, the key here for all of us today, I think, is to understand that any one of us can be a super spreader of this viral disinformation. So one study of Twitter found that 60% of everything that's shared in, on Twitter was never even opened. People had not even taken the time to open the article, to read it, to view the video, they just share it. And so it's for me very much like walking around coughing in people's faces or sneezing on people. Um, you know, we don't know whether or not uh, what we're sneezing on them contains coronavirus or not. Um, but that is what we're, that is, that is literally what we're doing when we're sharing disinformation, thoughtlessly sharing disinformation on social media. Over. Uh, thanks, Angus. I think this also, you know, kind of, this is a question which I had in mind. I thought this is something which probably I should ask you. Maybe this is the time is, uh, so, you know, in, even in my work and, you know, in some other, I think people, uh, when, when I discuss with them, they say that uh, once we engage on uh, social media, I mean, even if you want to uh, debunk something or correct something, sometimes that leads to uh, amplification of that, uh, uh, you know, let's say fake news or falsehoods. Uh, so how, how to deal with this problem? Mm. Um, so we, uh, at, at the end of our presentation, I'll, I'll show a couple of very concrete solutions. But the, the point is, is very important 
um, we often confuse familiarity with truth. And that's actually why many of these myths um, gain traction because once they're shared more and more, people see them more and more often and they unconsciously start to believe them simply because they see them a lot. Um, so it is important to consider whether or not trying to debunk a myth is actually just going to reinforce it. We know that um, it can um, reinforce the myth, although the most recent data that's come out in the last few months suggests that this effect is less than we thought it was. However, with vaccines, which is our world, um, which is a health decision that is very deeply rooted in our psychology, in our in our in our our, our levels of trust, our uh, moral values, our world view, often um, we know that um, trying to debunk misinformation can backfire. So, what can we do? We can inoculate people the same way that we can inoculate people against a virus. And there are approaches being tested right now that involve exposing people to a weakened form of the misinformation, warning them that the misinformation is coming, exposing them to a weakened form, um, highlighting the tactics of the author of, or the authors of the disinformation. And what we find is that disinformation um, authors often have common tactics or highlighting their underlying motivations. And, and in the world of uh, vaccine misinformation, it's either monetize, polarize, or politicize. By doing this in a single flow, it, it's possible to, to inoculate people. And I'll come back to this manage a little bit later, but there are some approaches that have been shown to effectively inoculate people against general misinformation, a bit like vaccinating you against most viruses in a certain way. And also we can inoculate people against specific misinformation or disinformation, um, you know, specific myths, specific conspiracies. But it takes a lot of thoughts. It takes, um, it takes a design of that, of that um, response, of those messages, of those narratives. And it really takes, a, a, it takes testing. We need to test as the same way we test vaccines we need to test what we say to people, how we engage with people, both for efficacy, how effective it is, but also for safety, whether or not it can backfire. Over. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's let's move forward. Uh, so I think that it's the time for uh, for our first live poll today. Uh, so Himanshu, can you help us uh, with this? Uh, Himanshu is our colleague from ISB who uh, you supporting uh, uh, supporting us uh, supporting our session and. Uh, yes, we will be getting some responses, and I think uh, I think maybe uh, uh, just to make it clearer. So we, what we are really talking about is if there is a significant negative impact. I'm sure it's it's pretty obvious there is a negative impact. Is it significant enough for us to you know spend time and energy and resources, uh, you know, to worry about it? That's exactly that's the precisely the question. So 61% uh, of the participants, I think we have voted. I think it's time for me to end it. So it's. Uh, it's a no-brainer in that sense. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So that's. Uh, so I think uh, we all agree that there is a negative impact. If I go to the next slide, I think yes. So this is again. I'm coming back to uh, you know what we're coming back to what uh, we initially uh, uh, you know heard from all of you. Uh, so we've tried to address some of the questions around COVID, you know, transmission, infection, which uh, which was not the focus, but, you know, we, we've discussed. But then there are other things which people uh, have mentioned in terms of impact. It, it's get, it gets confirmed again. And uh, uh, then there are other questions. That, again, I think we'll come to them. Uh, uh, so I think th there's a clear sense that people think that this is impactful and uh, they, they want they are concerned about it and they want to do something about it so that's that's what you know we get confirmed from this poll uh, any any observations angus uh, uh, on the on this I, clearly everybody understands that this is a real problem i guess the question the next question is uh, what can we do about it and i think that uh, we can we can think about what we can do at an individual level and we can start very very concretely by not sharing misinformation ourselves and perhaps engaging with our relatives and friends who do share misinformation because 
it's exactly the same as wearing a mask or washing our hands. Uh, we need to have a, a level of personal hygiene, first of all. That's, I think that's important. Secondly, we can think about as organizations or as associations or as groups, communities, what can we do together? And um, I think uh, we have some very concrete approaches uh, that can be taken now. There are online courses where you can rapidly learn how to identify misinformation, as I see there, and we'll be able to share uh, one or two of those courses, Manoj, at the end of the, at the, end of the call. Um, we need to be thinking about whether what, what role we can play in addressing specific misinformation that might be arising in our communities um, and uh, how we can potentially work together to ensure that um, not only is misinformation addressed, but that people are able to access and find the, the reliable, trusted information that they need to, to make their decisions. Over. Okay. Thank you. I think we'll, we'll come back again to this topic because uh, we're just testing that this is something which people uh, are finding, uh, you know, interesting. Uh, this is a survey which I actually wanted to share. This is part of the work which uh, I was doing um, at my end. And we, uh, this is something, you know, this is not done by me or my organization, but this is something what we noticed. So this is a survey in US, uh, which, which says that 50% of the people, uh, only 50% of people will accept a coronavirus vaccine when it comes. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's the average figure. But if you go across age groups, uh, race and ethnicity, political parties, again, our intention here is not to, you know, discuss one particular uh, group and, and, you know, kind of, uh, I think, uh, so we, we, we are sensitive to the fact that people are living in different circumstances. They are, have, have different realities. What, is, what it also shows, probably, we don't know that if, if this is due to misinformation, but there are certain groups who have, uh, even lower acceptance than, let's say, the general population. So, for example, Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Republicans, uh, even uh, young younger people, uh, 18 to 59 years old, these people have lower uh, than average uh, acceptance. So, we, we don't have a lot of these surveys across the world, but this is what you know I, I could see in my work uh, in the U.S. And I think, uh, Angus, uh, you, you would have also seen uh, some of these uh, studies and what, what's your take uh, uh, is it something we so because I also let's say frankly I, I work in the vaccine industry and you know, and we are not really just worried about uh, a COVID vaccine uh, we are worried about let's say all the vaccines uh, because people uh, used to take the vaccines and now uh, we we hope that they continue to take other vaccines uh, and they don't get worried about one I mean it's it's an important disease but uh, there are other important diseases as well even if we don't get a like you mentioned even if we don't get a vaccine very soon. It should not mean that they should, uh, you know, start uh, not taking other vaccines. So, what's your uh, view? Uh, is is it a problem or is it a temporary problem in terms of uh, vaccine confidence, or is it something which which can last mm. for some time? Mm. My first comment is that it's on. So we've seen similar results in uh, studies done in the UK, in France, in Hong Kong but I haven't found anything in India, for example, yet. And so my first comment is it's kind of unfortunate that we're not doing this kind of work in every country to start to understand ahead of time where people are sitting, where people are in terms of their relationship to acceptance of a new vaccine. In terms of routine immunization, we know that this is going to have almost certainly a huge impact. It's gonna have an impact, first of all, uh, because it's been hard for people to get to uh, immunization services. So, I mean, we're literally talking about a potential lost cohort of uh, children who through this period weren't immunized and we will have to go out and find and, and, and immunize again outside of the routine processes that we have in place. Well, the second thing is that we see that um, very different reactions, uh, responses from governments around the world um, and uh, differing public reactions to those responses some of the responses have actually reinforced public trust in the government and thereby in the health services. Some of them have eroded that trust. And we know that um, the foundation of vaccination, decision-making, vaccine acceptance is trust. And so I'm very concerned that we're, 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 we're making the trust more fragile um, in many, many countries and that we will see ongoing knock-on effects. And then the third point, I think, um, with vaccination as Manoj said, is this new vaccine, um, the way that we introduce this uh, will also have an impact, an impact and, and the impact of this vaccine will, will in turn have an impact on routine immunization. 
And my third point that I just wanted to make from this slide, which I think is quite distressing for me, is that we are seeing really for one of the first times very, very clear politicization of vaccination. Um, vaccination has been manipulated for political purposes before, um, but what we're seeing now is that people are actually um, uh, separating in their attitudes based on their political beliefs in the US. And you know, that is a dramatic difference between Democrats and Republicans. We can perhaps start to guess why they'd be there like that. We, we see that their, their president has just uh, started pushing uh, um, chloroquine once again as a, as a cure. But um, when something as fundamentally important, uh, you know, in public health as, as a new vaccine introduction to protect us against a pandemic disease becomes politicized, uh, we know that we're going to have problems in, in, the, in the rollout and the introduction of this vaccine. Over. Thank you. Uh, so I think let's go for the next part. Uh, so we, we, it's time for the second poll. I think we discussed a little bit, but uh, Himanshu, can you set this up uh, to just see uh, what, what our participants uh, think about it? Are, are you willing to, to control the spread and impact of misinformation? There is, uh, there seems to be a clear, uh, uh, I would say, uh, willingness and uh, say optimism about it that, you know, this misinformation is, is a problem which if we try, if we all try together, I think we can control and I think we'll, uh, we'll listen to you, Angus, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what are the strategies where you have seen that this has worked well. And I think there, there is, uh, I, if I remember, I think I, I have this slide, but if I remember, uh, many people have also asked uh, questions before the session that, you know, what are the best practices for countries? And uh, so I think you can, you can all, uh, you know, you, you can give us, uh, you know, this complete understanding in terms of what individuals can do, what governments can do. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, let me, uh, there is some, yeah. So this is, as, as I was mentioning, that, so we have questions around learning. We also have an important question. I think the most important question uh, here is also how to identify uh, misinformation from uh, uh, from facts, uh, filter, uh, you know, from clutter, rumor versus breaking news, uh, signal versus noise. So I think people here are quite uh, aware of this problem. Uh, it's the, the group which you know we, we are uh, with, and they they they, they want to act uh, mm. on it. And so uh, what do you suggest? Yep. Yeah. So. Uh, so let's start, let's start at the individual level. Um, you can all go straight to the first draft uh, online guide for the public on how to navigate the infodemic, which will give you clear, simple guidelines on how to identify misinformation. It's an excellent, uh, easy to access course um, uh, developed by a partner that we're working with now. We're developing a, a global program with them. Um, and I would rec highly recommend it that you do that and that you share that with, uh, with anyone and everyone that you know. There's a second one that I've shared there, how to spot conspiracy theories. Um, it's good as well, but uh, if you wanted to do one thing, I would suggest that you go to the first draft one. We do know that there are, um, there are now uh, games. So you see bad news there is a pretty fun uh, easy to play game, not just for kids, um, that will in a very short time, I think it, I think they, they estimate between 10 to 15 minutes of playing, um, help you also be able to understand um, and identify uh, fake news. Uh, and that's one that, you, that as I mentioned uh, previously, helps to vaccinate you by focusing on the techniques that are used by those who create misinformation. Um, there's a very interesting curriculum that was uh, developed in, uh, in uh, East Africa, uh, tested in a large cluster randomized trial in Uganda um, in uh, primary school students, so a school curriculum uh, that also showed, uh, demonstrated a significant impact, uh, had to, to have a significant impact on um, the, the kids' ability to identify misinformation. Um, and there's, a, there's another game from, uh, uh, colleagues that we know in uh, BC and British Columbia in Canada that's, that does a similar thing. Kids play, kids answer questions. Um, 
they win vaccines for UNICEF, which is great for me. <laughs> um, every, every 10 questions they get right, a vaccine is donated to UNICEF. But it, it gives them more broad uh, critical thinking and evidence uh, evaluation skills. So for me, these are, these are things that can potentially build our kind of background immunity to misinformation, not just for this pandemic, but over the longer term. Then um, there are other things that can be done. Uh, we obviously need to um, push the big social platforms to make uh, system, systemic changes to, for example, um, uh, to reduce the ability uh, for people to share misinformation. So in the Zika, the Zika uh, epidemic in Brazil, uh, WhatsApp reduced uh, people's ability to share uh, on WhatsApp from, I think it was 50 down to 20, or it might even be 10 people that you can share in one go, which had a real impact on the spread of misinformation. They can also direct people to the correct information. And we've seen uh, many of the platforms have done this. Unfortunately, they're directing people to correct information on public health websites that is a little bit dry, perhaps, is the nicest way of putting it. Um, they can also take down disinformation. They can de-platform people who are making money from disinformation. These, these people have been called entrepreneurs and they can make a lot of money um, by driving traffic to their website or to their Facebook page through this um, outrageous, uh, frightening disinformation that they produce that is, that is completely fake. Uh, just by getting traffic to their website, they can make a lot of money. So this can be, you know, this can be seen, this must be seen as a profit-making enterprise, not just uh, misdirected people uh, sharing information that they thought was good. Uh, social, social platforms must act. So there are many things they can do, and they have a lot, a lot to do, I think. Um, we can also engage, we can also push uh, governments and public health authorities to produce the kind of information that people can actually understand and want to read and want to understand. And that means applying social and behavioral science, um, what we call behavioral insights to the design of that information so that it's in a format that people love, that people, that people find interesting. This is what any, any company, uh, any big company is doing every single day with their website and their apps and their um, their presence on social media. They're rapidly testing the messages, the content, uh, the design, the layout, over iterative testing with their, with their customers to ensure that what they're putting out there is what their customers want to see. Yet we don't do that in public health yet. Sure. Um, and then finally we can, and this is something that um, I'm planning to do uh, in the next six months, we can start to, I want to create a, a lab where we actually start to create the content that will inoculate people uh, either generally, as you see here, or more, broad, or more specifically against specific misinformation and provide that content in a, a tailored form to different countries um, that they can then tailor for different communities so that we start to shift the balance of the conversation. Over. Um, so I think uh, so. There, there were a couple of questions around best practices for governments. Maybe uh, in your experience, do you see some governments doing uh, better than others on this? I mean, just for the sake of learning. I don't think I don't see many governments doing anything around really uh, concretely tackling misinformation. But what I what I have seen is um, very uh, different responses at the government level to um, engaging with the public around the pandemic. Uh, and all of the measures that they're putting in place, which is the first step towards securing public trust and um, combating misinformation. So we see governments, um, for example, state governments uh, where I come from in Australia, who uh, were very transparent, whose chief medical officer engaged with the public on TV and on uh, social networks every single day. Uh, that person was honest, open um, and frank with the public. And we know that that had a that that was able to sustain public trust and, and increase compliance with many of the preventive activities that we introduced. Um, in terms of addressing misinformation, there are some uh, government agencies, for example, in the UK who have produced guides on what to do about this. Um, but uh, our perspective is that this needs to become more systematic, uh, embedded within uh, different government departments, within the communications teams of different government departments, 
they need to be applying the science of, of, of combating misinformation to everything they do. Over. Okay, thank you. I think we, we can take one question. Uh, uh, I think we'll, uh, uh, this is something we, we expect. Uh, our, our questions were, were leading, but uh, you know, they were also to see because uh, frankly, you know, sometimes uh, when we interact with people on this topic, sometimes we hear that people think that this, uh, let's say this problem can't be handled or uh, this is a temp I would say sometimes people also that this, uh, this is a temporary situation, let's say. And once, once you have, uh, uh, you know, let's say a good vaccine or a good product or things like that, people will eventually accept it. So therefore we thought that it's important to see whether people really uh, you know, uh, see that this, this question is important. Uh, that was the purpose. Uh, yeah. So I'll go to the next slide now. Manoj, can I can I add one more thing to what we can do? And this sure. is something that um, that we've we both worked on. Um, uh, we can increase the, the 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 share of voice in the social conversation, in the social media conversations. Um, we can all participate in those conversations and provide. Um, you know, without spreading misinformation, uh, more rational and calm voices ourselves. Uh, we can also embark uh, trusted voices, as I like to call them. For example, uh, we've developed a training course for healthcare professionals, help them get into social media and become a voice in, the, in those conversations. The reason we did that is that we know that within our world, uh, vac vaccines, healthcare professionals are the most trusted voices of any voice out there. Um, we can embark students, uh, we can embark school kids, we can embark youth, uh, we can embark um, uh, religious uh, leaders. Uh, there are many ways, many voices out there that we don't hear in these social media conversations that we should be hearing because they're trusted, they're rational, they're calm. Um, and so that's, that's something we can think about as well. Over. Sure. I think I, I can connect it very well with, with, with a discussion which we had, we had last week in, let's say, one of our industry groups. And, uh, uh, you know, we were, we were worried about this trend of, uh, you know, let's say some disadvantaged communities not, uh, uh, you know, not having faith uh, on governments, on vaccines and on various things. Therefore, uh, because they, they did suffer a lot during the pandemic and that situation makes them prone uh, to, to have low trust and therefore, uh, you know, uh, they may... They may uh, uh, feel, uh, let's say, they, they, their self-efficacy towards things uh, is not uh, as uh, as high as they would like. In fact, in one of the slides, which which I was trying to understand about Google Trends, uh, there was some some glitch there. But what what I was trying to see uh, in India is that whenever there was a lockdown, uh, there was uh, India had a successive uh, you know series of lockdowns, and whenever there was a lockdown, new lockdown announced for the next let's say couple of weeks, there was a spike. In the search behavior on some of these topics, uh, and and obviously that's the search behavior is not really uh, only about misinformation, but it does uh, tend to show that there is uh, there is a definitely a need which some of some groups uh, have, and and so the point which uh, one of uh, your, you know the colleagues in the meeting he he said that uh, uh, it's, it's it's important connecting also to your point he said that it's important to see where where all these groups uh, uh, get influence from. Because we are concerned about, uh, uh, you know, their, their future, their health, and uh, their, their cooperation also uh, in everything which other 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 people do, and therefore, uh, so that was an idea which which I really, uh, you know, um, uh, which I'm connecting to when when you speak about it, religious communities and all all the other civil society uh, is something we need to bring in, mm. and uh, I think uh, so. There, I, I'll see there. We have uh, maybe I don't know if we have more questions. Okay, I think we, we uh, some people are interested uh, to work on this topic. It, it's a good sign. Uh, there is there is one in chat. Uh, yes, so there is there is a question on uh, uh, do BCG or MMR have a role in COVID nineteen? Again, this is the sort of question uh, where uh, where maybe Angus uh, you can give us uh, some perspectives. Well, the first perspective is we don't know, but um, there are some studies ongoing. Uh, there's a study in Australia ongoing to test. I think where uh, to test whether uh, BCG immunization may provide some protection against uh, COVID-19. What we do know is that some vaccines um, trigger more general, uh, broader immune responses that can provide us with some 
um, protection against other pathogens, other viruses in this case. Um, we don't know if either of these vaccines are doing this at the moment. Um, the one thing we do know um, is that when we get, if somebody catches measles, their immune system is suppressed. In fact, their immune system loses its memory for all of the things that it's learned to defend the person against. And that can last for years. So we do know that if you have had your measles vaccine, if your children have had their measles vaccine and they're protected against measles, then in a sense, you are protecting them against infections such as COVID-19. Uh, by keeping their, their little immune system intact. But for the time being, the answer is no, but the, some of these uh, things are being tested in, in clinical trials. Um, and as I, I guess most of you know, this is the way that we really understand uh, whether or not a treatment or a vaccine works by having a control group, by having a group who receives the intervention and then looking at the outcomes at the end and seeing whether there's a significant difference between the two groups. Over. Thank you. Uh, I think we, we also uh, are into a poll. I don't know. Uh, yes, uh, so I, I don't know why I'm not being rated. It's only the speaker. Uh, but anyways, uh, I think we do. Uh, people have responded. Uh, I think before we end, uh, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just share my screen back again because we, as we promised, there are uh, certain resources which we, we, will, we should come back to. And uh, sorry, getting stuck somehow. Okay, yes, so these are the resources. Uh, you know, we, we, we are just sharing them again. These are uh, some of the common uh, sites which I use. Uh, so my uh, you know, friends, family members, colleagues, uh, they often uh, you know, reach out to me. And I'm sure you also, they also reach out to you, Angus. But, but I've... Um, them a little bit more relevant from Indian uh, perspective and uh, one of them is also let's say I think many of our participants may be from around Delhi so uh, just an, as an example I've shared uh, the link for Delhi website and then uh, you know obviously others we have discussed and uh, uh, I, I don't know if we have more questions uh, yes so there is another question I think we have some few minutes what is the possible uh, reason for low mortality in South Asian countries uh, I don't know. Uh, so I, I can add maybe a couple of, I think, questions on, on top of that. So people have said that, you know, we have better immunity. Uh, and some people uh, say that uh, uh, another reason could be that our age distribution, we, uh, we have less number, less proportion of elderly people. And some people even say that we have a virus which, uh, let's say, which has uh, less uh, virulence or mortality rate. So, uh, so do you... What, what's your sense? Do you see, uh, uh, is, is, is there, are there such viruses which have different mortality, mortality rates? Um, I can't speak to different uh, coronaviruses circulating. Um, I think what we can speak to is what you've already touched upon, that different populations, different um, health, people with different health conditions, um, and indeed uh, even uh, uh, very basic genetics. So it seems that um, men are more susceptible to the virus than women. Um, so there seem to be differences. We know that there are major risk factors such as um, obesity, chronic disease, and as you mentioned, menage age. Um, it may be that there is something genetic going on there. It may be um, to do with the system of healthcare and how people are being, uh, you know, whether they're being rapidly and well treated. And I think your points as well, um, you know, a younger population um, I think we need to be honest as well. It's also potentially um, a question of, you know, how each country is recording um, the number of coronavirus cases and the number of deaths related to coronavirus. Every country does this differently. So it's kind of hard for us to compare between countries as well. And when we see, you know, the biggest economy in the world, uh, the leader of that economy saying, um, the more we test, the more cases we find. <laughs> we we realise that that you know even testing is a politi is politicised. <laughs> Over. Absolutely. So uh, I think I can uh, to your point regarding uh, different. I think uh, testing, uh, for example, death uh, death recording of deaths. I remember an example from Switzerland. Switzerland, what what they were doing is they they were uh, you know uh, estimating the total mortality, so comparing it, it with last year, and they did see an increased uh, mortality from last year and. 
Uh, I think some of the state governments in India have also begun to do that. But it's yes. I, it's very difficult, as you are saying. It's the standardization for these uh, formats is also different. But the general sense, I think, which most experts have is is the mortality rate in India is low. I mean, we we, we don't know. We can't pinpoint it to the right reason. That is something which uh, people are beginning to accept uh, quite widely now. Well, I'm also hoping that it's because um, people in India are adopting preventive behaviors uh, uh, better than many other countries. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very good. No, and I think it's it's time. Uh, I think we are towards the end. So uh, I would like to uh, thank you all. If there are no more questions, again, uh, I see. So again, uh, there is a question around why not the younger population is taking interest in public policies and social sciences. Uh, I, I don't know. I I see a lot of uh, a lot of my uh, you know um, uh, friends and family members. They they I find them. They are taking more interest in this uh, in this subject of public policy than in the past, uh, because in India we used to you know have a system of education which favored let's say technical sciences over liberal arts. Um, that's, that's my general sense. I, and I think since uh, Angus, you you are a strong I think uh, believer in uh, behavioral sciences and you do practice it uh, quite a lot. Uh, maybe you can drop some global ends. Mm, I, I mean, I like this question's great, and I think it's maybe the take-home message for everybody because, <clears throat> as I understand, the audience is coming from different sectors, uh, from different specialties, uh, professional professions. Um, I think that the social and behavioral sciences have um, a lot to bring to almost every sector, almost every industry, almost every human endeavor, and we're not capitalizing uh, upon them enough. Um, this pandemic is, the challenge of this pandemic is not just the virus. It's not just a problem with a virus. It's a human problem. We need people to adopt preventive behaviors. We need them to accept the vaccine. We need them, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, as with almost every field, um, we need to better understand what is underlying people's um, attitudes, their intentions and their behaviors so that we can help them to make the right decision. In the case of health, many of the right decisions are very, very clear, but um, we, have, we have seen in many countries, um, following the lead of the UK, uh, a behavioral insights team or a behavioral insights unit being set up to inform public policy. And I think that this is a great way forward. And my dream, um, big organizations, uh, whether they're you know, multilaterals, but also companies would also be setting up We'll also set up uh, a behavioral insights team so that they're applying what we, what we, the, 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 the tools and insights that we can get through the social and behavioral sciences to the way that we conduct our everyday um, business, our everyday activities, so that we can have a more, a, a more positive impact on people's lives. Over. Thank you, Angus. I think uh, uh, this is very helpful. So I, Generally, how, how have you been liking this transition because you were in the corporate sector before and now you are into a multilateral organization and uh, uh, how, how, how has it been for you? Because uh, um, I think I think a so I think you and I had the uh, the luck to work for an organization Sanofi Pasteur that is in public health and um, Therefore there is a there is a strong sense of purpose within that organization um, in an organization like UNICEF, that sense of purpose is a tenfold. And we know that we know that for anybody, not just myself, but for anybody, once you reach a certain level in your career, once you reach a certain purpose, a certain uh, salary, that purpose becomes more important than benefits, than salary, than anything. That, that almost all of us want to uh, think that the work we're doing every day is having an impact on people's lives. And I, I must say, working for an organization that puts children's best interests at heart, that defends children around the world, is deeply satisfying. And um, I feel that perhaps what I do every day may just be touching um, some lives. And so that's that puts a smile on my face every day. Over. Great. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll just close from my end. Uh, so I'll thank all the participants, uh, ISB team, uh, Hima, Himanshu, and Parul. My public policy uh, SIG moderators Kashyap and Varun, and obviously Angus uh, for you know taking out time and sharing your insights to help make this topic uh, very simple for all of us. And uh, I think we are available, both of us, if anybody wants to reach out. And uh, over to you, 
uh, Hima. On behalf of ISB, let me thank uh, Dr. Angus for your time and efforts you put into the presentation. This was uh, really insightful as to how uh, misinformation, disinformation, all these act upon, and especially in these pandemic times. Thank you, Manoj, for uh, facilitating and supporting this and being an active uh, moderator. And uh, I would like to end by saying, you know, ISB is a school committed to diverse students. And uh, we hope to bring in a lot of uh, social sciences and other people uh, to add to the things. And the only solution to this, I think, is uh, once a social scientist gets uh, paid as much as an investment banker, the problem is solved. That mm -hmm. is the huge thing. But till these are pandemic times when we realize the importance of the social scientist and money can't buy everything. You know the value of a lot of things now and that is the time. And uh, thank you so much for your time and bringing these thoughts to us and information to us. Thank you, Hema. Thank, thank you, you. Manoj, for the invitation. And thank you, everybody, for listening and for your interest. Yeah. Thank you.